1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hi friends, welcome to another episode of Rev Recovery, a podcast for folks who are either thinking about leaving ministry, have left ministry, um, have thought about transitioning in their job, or just a little curious and wondering, Rev Recovery, what's this all about? We are glad to have you here, no matter why you're here. Um, I am Sarah, and this is my co-host. Justin. And both of us are former clergy, although in different stages of that. And if you want to hear more about that, please check out our earlier episodes and we'll talk a little bit more about how you can join in in a community. But today we are excited to hear the story of, I would say an internet friend. I'm going to call you my internet friend because we're friends, but on the internet. So this is really fun for me. I'm going to give a little blurb and then we're going to hop into a conversation. So this is Reverend Rev Ogun Holder, who is the co-founder of Project Sanctus, a safe, brave online space to discover and be our holiest self. And in so doing, together, create a world of equanimity, which is a difficult word for me to say, justice and love for all. He is ordained in the unit as a unity minister, and he holds a certificate in spiritual coaching, grief and bereavement counseling, and also the Enneagram. So you got a lot going on. He is one of the hosts of Pub Theology Live, a weekly podcast on life, culture, faith, meaning, and identity. He's also the co-host of With Love and Justice for All, a podcast about embodied anti-racism, which is just two of my favorite words in one sentence. So we are so grateful to have you here. Ogan, so give us a little history about what your local church-wise, what how did you get into ministry? What what did ministry look like for you before we get to what is ministry for you now? Well, first off, let me just say, big fan of the show. It it, <laughs> it landed in my life exactly the right time when when you guys dropped this podcast. I was like, oh look, someone's doing a show just for me <laughs> at the time <laughs> yeah. of life that I am. You are at. welcome, Ogan. You are welcome. <laughs> uh, so thank you. That's how my life works. Things happen when I when I need them to. I am originally from Barbados. So if during this uh, time you hear the, you hear the, the the nice Caribbean lilt going on, that's where I'm from. And I grew up in what I guess you guys will call an evangelical context. We don't, we wouldn't call it that in Barbados. We just called it church, <laughs> but, but it was, it was, it was lively. It was exciting. And, and I was also a church musician from the time I was about 12. So church was my life. It was my social life. It was the only group of people my mother would allow me to befriend. And it, it kind of sort of was my everything. And I never considered being a minister while I was in school. It was, I just, you know, church was always a thing that was there. I actually went to undergrad to be a music therapist. And it was while I was in undergrad, I went to a Methodist university, not because I was a Methodist, but because they had a program. And by a weird coincidence, my uncle, who used to live in Brooklyn, happened to move to this tiny town called Winchester, but an hour west of D.C., where they just happened to be a university. They just happened to have the program that 
I wanted to do. My mother said, go there because somebody can keep an eye on you. So I go there and I have to take electives not related to my major. So I take a religion elective. And I should tell you at this point, I'm I'm like hardcore Christian on campus. I'm the, I'm the guy wearing the t-shirts that said, <laughs> <laughs> why is God like Coca-Cola? They're both the real thing. You know, there's, there's a life. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. The lifesaver yeah. yeah. moment. Exactly. God's gym. We've all seen this. We've yes. all seen this. Thank you for that confession. Okay. A breadcrumb and fish for Abercrombie. <laughs> yes! <and fish>. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was that guy for the first, that would take maybe two years. And then I took this elective called Life of Jesus, where I learned for the first time that the Bible was not the literal inherent word of God. I learned the history of the Bible, that the Bible really was not history. Oh, Methodism. It blew my brain open in so many ways. It blew my life apart in so many ways. And yeah, it was my first crisis of faith. And I say my first because I've had others. I tell people if you don't have at least two or three good crises of faith in your life, you're not doing this right. Mm -hmm. So that was my first one. And I left church for about a year. And then I happened to meet someone who I would later marry. And she's the one who got me back into the unity tradition. I say to people, I came back to church for a woman. And it was absolutely true. <laughs> Missionary dating, guys. Yes, Missionary there, dating. There you go. To, to, to impress a girl. And unity, unity is an interesting, I love to explain unity to, to people who've never encountered unity before in this way. First of all, it's not Unitarian, two, two different things altogether. I know I wanted to read Unitarian, but it's uh, unity is no, totally it, different. It, it, is, I know. it is unity. So there, there, there are two quick ways I explain this. The, the shortest version is uh, unity is Christians who really want to be Buddhist, but they're not ready to let go of God yet. Okay. Okay. And, okay. and it'll, it'll make sense when I dive in some more. I also say like, you know, for those who are familiar with the, the metaphor of the big tent of Christianity, you know, you got your Catholic is your main one main tent pole and you got the Protestant and all this off spins. Of the, Unity is like the tent flap fluttering in the breeze. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, yeah. we're just like yeah. barely, barely there. <laughs> just holding on. It's holding on. We, we're what we call new thought Christianity. We're I mean, one storm away. Exactly. <laughs> just we're, taking off. <laughs> I love it. We're, we're not Bible literalists at all. We infuse and incorporate a lot of Eastern practices, meditation, contemplation, mindfulness practices, that sort of thing. We we don't look to Jesus as the the great exception. We, we refer to Jesus as the way shore. He's a great example that oh, okay. we all are to sort of emulate. Um, so, so, and the approach we take to the Bible is what we call metaphysical. So every, every character, place, event, you know, again, represents some unfolding of our own spiritual journey within. So unity was familiar, I guess, Christian familiar enough, but it also made intellectual sense to, you know, for, for me to a point. So yeah, I met, I met her name, uh, was Jennifer. She's deceased now, but I met her and she was also a music therapist. That's how we met in the music therapy world. And she got me into Unity, uh, taking advantage of my church music skills. And it made sense to me. It felt, it felt like God made sense when I got into Unity. And I could, and I could find myself in a, in a spiritual home and context where head and heart are resonating. They're not, they're not struggling against each other anymore. Uh, so there he was. And then, as I like to say, I drank so much of the Kool-Aid that I decided that I would become a pusher of the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and, um, and you know, we talk about this call to ministry. And for me, it was less a call 
than it was one moment I woke up and had this realization that I always knew this was going to be my path. And, and when I had that just like moment of knowing, my first response was like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, I forgot. That what's sounds a, about right. <laughs> yeah. What's the yeah. profanity policy on this podcast? I forgot oh, that. Oh, uh, you okay. are welcome. Gotcha. So that was my response because, because in my life, all the examples of ministers that I saw were people who were overworked, who never seemed to spend a lot of time with their family. If they were paid really well, there might've been some shady stuff going on in the back. (laughs) Isn't that that true? Like, it's like, you're either not making money at all or you're making a decent living, but there's probably something. Too much money. Let me air quote that too much, too much money. Uh, Yeah, so that was my experience. And I, for a time, tried to fight that. I, you know, had my own Joan and the whale type experience on a mountain in outside of Lander, Wyoming, that literally almost cost me my life. Then decided in 2007, all right, enough of this. Let's dive in. I was ordained in 2011. And yeah. Okay. So that's, Ogun, can I back you up a second? Are you sure. going to just gloss over the Wyoming mountain? Yeah, I feel like you can't just be like, I'm from Barbados. Was I was such, in Wyoming. That, was like, such that a alone is. <laughs> I didn't know if we were going to come back or not. I just wanted yeah, to put I a pin on that one. We, did, we didn't have to. Um, so, so I was working at a charter school in Kansas City at the time. I was a music teacher. And as often happens with these like music teachers, art teachers, stuff like that, we get we get tossed the plum assignments of like extracurricular activities and this was also during the time of no child left behind i know that if you guys are familiar or remember that whole nightmare to education every child drug along oh my god pretty much pretty much but what happened was so many of the teachers like myself we were told you know the academic decathlon team needs a faculty sponsor Hey, Mr. Holder, you're not doing nothing. You can take it on. Like, what do you mean I'm not doing anything? Uh, so I became the sponsor, not just for academic decathlon, but the uh, program Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School. Right, we're we're send you know send kids on all these like outdoor expeditions all over the country, all over the world to build character and stuff, and which was sort of really ironic because I don't camp, I don't outdoor. <laughs> <laughs> like, like for me, camping is like super eight and the Wi-Fi is out. That's, that's as much camping as camp, I want to do. But I also want to point out, I don't outdoor. It's probably no, my like, favorite quote. Like, I don't. Yeah. I don't uh, you know, that's, that's like, I'm from Barbados. I'll hit a beach. That's about it. Um, <laughs> woods, woods scare me. In in my I may have may have watched too many movies, but nothing good comes from black people wandering in woods yes. at night. Yes. <laughs> okay. I have this... I have two friends who every time I ask them to come camping with me say, Sarah, you need to just let go of this vision you have of black yeah. people camping. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> like... yeah. It's horrible stereotype, but there's a lot it of is, truth. I do have it. black friends that do camp though, so so just do saying. I. So do I. Just I don't go the, with them. The stereotype <laughs> is not there for no reason. Not for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Not for no reason. So as there as the faculty sponsor for this group, turns out one year I could go on a trip and not have to pay anything for this trip. One. And it was also at a time where I really did not like teaching in the charter school, being a music therapist and being like a a mainstream music teacher are two entirely different things. But I had to feed my child and my wife. And so I took on this job. I was very stressed. And I thought, 
you know what I need? I need a getaway. And this was a, this was a, this is how bad things were for me, for me going on this outdoor adventure. And it was what we call a supervised pack supported trip. So you're, you're out trekking up in the mountains, experienced campers are supervising you professionals. I didn't know there were things such a thing as professional campers before, but apparently there. And at certain points along the trip, you know, this uh, somebody would ride in with a pack horse and a pack mule and bring your supplies, take out your trash. It it was sort of like a little bit of a luxury hike. So I go on this thing. We fly into Lander, Wyoming, which is like eh, seven thousand feet above sea level. First day we hop on a bus, we drive to 10,000 feet above sea level. And then the first day we hike to 11,000 feet above sea level. That's rough. And someone from Barbados does not go above sea level. Only in a plane. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's rough. So at this point in time, I've lived in Barbados. I've lived in Washington, D.C. I've lived in Kansas City. Okay. That's, That's the extent of the height that I've ever lived at. So I go, I'm up on this mountain and... After about the third day, things start to slow down for me. Okay. The the legs don't want to move as fast as I'm telling them to move. Can't take a deep breath. So we think altitude sickness is setting in. But turns out it's worse than that. I start to develop what they call high altitude pulmonary edema. Pulmonary edema, yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's bad. I could. By day day five, as I'm breathing, I could feel fluid on my lungs bubbling. It was it was actually kind of cool, but dangerous, right? Because the fluid keeps forming. There's no air getting in my lungs. I'm basically gonna drown from the inside. So they decide to evacuate me off of this mountain. This is about halfway through what was supposed to be almost a two week adventure, and I get to the hospital and. Basically, the doctor says, we just need to get you off this mountain. You don't need no drugs. You don't need nothing. Just just go home. <laughs> it's funny now. Not funny it's, then. It's funny now. But but part of what also happened is the night before they evacuated me, when I was really hitting the wall and I was keeping, I was keeping the group back, and they wouldn't have met up with the appointed time to get a new round of supplies. So they sent the group ahead, and one of the folks supervising the the group and another camper stayed with me, crawling at the snail space. A massive storm blew in that night. Okay, so we are sheltering under a tent cover, no tent poles because they're with everybody else. So the three of us are huddled under this tent cover at some point. And you don't camp. I don't camp. Some point (laughs) I have to go to the bathroom. So they got to escort me one on each side because I can barely walk to to the bath. There's lightning flashing, rain's falling. It's like this otherworldly experience. And in the midst of this, I go, well, if this ain't some Jonah the whale bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. And that's, that's when I know that's, that's when it hits me. I'm trying to avoid this path. And are you guys familiar with the artist way, Julia Cameron? Yeah, Yeah. it's a great book. So I came down off the mountain and I did the artist way. And by doing the artist way, I really got that clarity of, okay, this is your path. You are running from a thing that you don't know what your experience of it is going to be. So maybe just stop running and see what happens. So that's 
That's what that story. Wow. Thank you, Justin, for making him get back up on the mountain and tell us the story. Yeah, like that. That's that's a great. I, I've I've taken people hiking like up in like Colorado, like high altitude and stuff. And yeah, it, it's no joke. Like you, it is not if altitude sickness or even just those first that first day or two is rough. Like it when you're describing what you were going through, I I was it was honestly shocking. Like someone taking somebody from Kansas putting them at 10,000 feet and then having them hike up another thousand feet. That's rough for people that know what they're doing. And, and when I was in the hospital, the doctor says, well, you know, altitude sickness is not unusual and we never quite know who gets it. We, we see athletes in prime condition come up yeah. here and suffer. Yeah. Anyone and we can get see, it. Yeah. Yeah. We see schlubs come up and do fine, but we don't usually get like pulmonary edema at this height. This is like for people like hiking the Himalayas and stuff sort of deal and he's like he's like where are you from and when they tell him all the places i'm from that's when he says oh oh you've never <laughs> been he says you've never been this high side of a plane have you it's like yeah. no <laughs> no yeah. no Mm-mm. it's like this is you just climbed everest yeah, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> relative to my life experience yeah. so he's yeah. like yeah we just we just need to get you off the mountain and and that and that's what happened so you were ordained in 2011 Yes, I was ordained. I my wife also happened to be a minister, two ministers in the house. My daughter is still recovering from being a a double PK. PK. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But she she was a full time minister at the time. And where we were living by now, we're in Raleigh, North Carolina, and there is no other place that needs a minister. So I embarked on what I called my rock star preacher tour. And I visited pretty much most of the unique churches around the country. Almost every Sunday, I'm flying somewhere. They're putting me up. They're rolling out the red carpet or, you know, the the very spruced up maroon carpet, whatever they had at the time. <laughs> I know. am so against our red carpets in churches. <laughs> I just need everyone to know that that is a stance I have taken publicly. Typically, the red carpet is like... Crimson. It's terrible. Almost <laughs> AstroTurf, like yeah, the type of quality terrible. that it is. Yeah. Yeah, and it's <sighs> terrible in photos and no bride, no groom. Nobody wants that. Nobody and yet, wants. And there it is. is. There it is. Yeah. The blood of the blood of Christ everywhere. So I'd, I'd, I'd roll in, give a sermon. You know, I'd, I'd be the guest minister that would say the things the resident minister would be too afraid to say. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, stir up trouble and then just get back on the plane and go home, leave them to deal with the aftermath. It was glorious. I loved it. Did not pay nearly enough, of course, but but I was still I was still having a good time. And then we we moved back to the D.C. area. My wife got a a post in there and they happened to need an associate minister after all. And I joined her. So now now we're fulfilling this this sort of dream that we had two of us together working at the church. And, you know, that old joke, how do you make God laugh? You tell her your plans. So turns out that two of us working together at the same church was not a good idea. Oh, shocking. That is literally sounds like my hell. I would because never want to date a pastor. We we <laughs> thought it was we thought it would have been great, but turns out we had some different ideas on how to do <laughs> ministry and how a minister should show up in the world. Yeah. And yeah. So we butted heads a lot. And it began to really put some strain on our marriage. So we decided that if we were going to stay married, we could not work in the same place. So I went off and found my own job. And right around the time I was starting that was when she was diagnosed with cancer. And she 
passed away in 2015. Now, what was interesting, it was um, um, it's the latter stage of 2014 that I'm applying for this church in Massachusetts. It's Amesbury, Massachusetts, just a quick hour and a half plane flight. So when I was offered the job, I was like, yeah, I'll become one of them like long commute people. You know, I'll be up there for three days, be home for four, that sort of deal. And it looked good on paper. It was actually decent pay. It was the first time uh, we were both holding down a full-time job probably since, I don't know, before my child was born. Because when she was born, I I became stay-at-home dad for two and a half years. Can I tell you, best job ever, 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 ever. Loved it. It's a hard job. Hard job, but loved it. I'm the kind of dad who was like, you know, kids crying in the background, I'm like, all right, she's fed, uh, she's clean, uh, she's not sick, uh, time for a nap. And I could just zone it out. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I don't cry herself to sleep, she'll be all right. So I started this job six months before my wife passed away. I started this full-time and it's, it's my first full-time job as a minister. Uh, to that church's credit, they gave me so much support, so much grace. After she passed away, some time off, they continued to pay me, not full pay, but but enough that I didn't have to worry about anything. It was so, so compassionate, and I, and I loved them for it. So that was 2015. And then, then, he who shall not be named got elected. <gasps> Baltimore. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Baltimore uh, is too kind of <laughs> comparison. You know what's interesting? I just want to pause for a minute and notice a theme within many of the stories that we hear. I was able to tread water until he got elected. Till he got elected. Which is and- like an uncovering. It is a come to Jesus, come to whatever moment for many people where they go, what in the actual hell am I doing? What I suspected is now true, I think, is was maybe for a lot of people the underlying right, thing. Right, right, like, right. I suspected there's no way I could do this, or I suspected this is where I was going, but now it's like, oh, oh, wow, this is awful. So it, it was a combination of me still going through immense grief, because this is just a year later, right? Was it 2016? What, what year? 2016. Was? Yes, 2016 was the election, yeah. yeah. So so it's 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 just a year later. And so so I'm still going through this this grief experience. I'm now a I'm now a single parent of a teenage girl who just lost her mother. So there's all of that. He gets elected Oof. and 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 Unity is a church that is open and affirming and welcoming in all the in all the best ways. Like we have we have folks who are conservative, folks who are liberal. We're welcoming everyone, all lifestyles. And when he, who shall not be named, got elected, then those those differences, those distinctions, now suddenly became very, very clear and and divisive. Began to get divisive, and and a lot of that also was a result of my tonal shift. So so now my shift both from the pulpit and from and on social media is now becoming a lot more justice oriented and also a lot more call to action. So the, 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 I guess the denomination, the movement that people compare us most to are Unitarians. Unitarians tend to be very in the world action oriented. Unity folks tend to be very navel gazing. 
right? We we do a lot of what I call them out on as spiritual bypassing, right? Our work is to envision and 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 see it right, not not set it right, not create the conflict, just hold it in consciousness, knowing that it will somehow magically manifest. That's that's a lot of the thinking. In, You're very in good unity. Democrats. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> very much so. We can say all the right things, but we're very not much do that. Very, very much so. <laughs> Wait, is this an inconvenience? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so as I began to to speak more to that, and also began to speak to a lot of now the ever present racial injustices that people are slowly beginning to be, notice and become more apparent, because he who shall not be named did not hesitate to hide. <laughs> his uh his shall we say uh racist proclivities it it started to rub some in the congregation a little bit the wrong way and some of those people happened to be mostly conservative and a lot of them happened to be some of our biggest donors so i started chasing away the money left right and center i had a memorable conversation with one of our biggest donors who turned out to be a little homophobic, did not know this because he was in that church for a long time. He was a member of the choir. And, and he said, he accused me of pandering to, you know, like the LGBTQ folk in our community. And then he's sitting there talking with me and he said, I forget how he said this, uh, how the conversation got around with this, but he said, you know, I grew up with a very traditional idea of marriage between a man and a woman. Why can't they just be happy with civil unions? And when he said they, I was like, who are the they you're referring to? Those people who you stand next to every Sunday in the choir and sing with? Are you saying that they should not be able to enjoy the same rights that you enjoy because for me in our when we speak about oneness in our denomination and oneness that is god for me when we talk about how that outpictures in our daily life it speaks to me of justice and equity so yes i think i get to speak about those things if i'm gonna be in integrity with myself and our teaching so yeah Sorry you feel that way. And then he disappeared from our community. So so now the powers that be at the church are like, why you keep chasing away all these people? And I'm like, I'm not chasing them away. They're choosing to leave because I am no longer holding the church is entertaining space, right? They're, they're those who, you know, some Sundays in the receiving line, I'd hear folks say, you know, like, I come to church not to hear any of that. I come to church to get away from that because I'm hearing it all week. And my response to them would be, well, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to help equip you to be in the space of this Monday through Friday and have some spiritual tools. And the only way you can do that is if we name it, if we talk about it, if we don't avoid it. And, and you have to understand in the unity space, that was not a thing that happened a lot at all. I have a feeling that didn't go over well. Yeah. We're going to give a break for our commercial sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to hear how our mountaintop friend <laughs> once again makes a shift and what you experienced after that. 
1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Again, once you started saying the things that are requiring action, what was people's response? Now that you're known as a panderer, is that the word? <laughs> I do want to say something about that because it's always fascinating that people say like, you know, you're pandering to usually it's, you know, the left or the homosexuals or whatever, you know, the gays, that's usually how they say it. But it's like, what is underneath that is like, I miss that you no longer pander to me because that's the, that's really what it is. Like, cause they're, they're in the spotlight. They're the one being pandered to. They're the one, you know, constantly all the greatest hits are straight white guys. Like as a straight white guy, I can say that, you know, we get the greatest hits. And the second you're not playing the greatest hits anymore. It's like, why don't you pander to me anymore? You're speaking up. You're not pandering to, you're speaking up for these voices that have not had an opportunity or even just making space for them. Like, I'm making space for you to be here. And that means straight white guy with a lot of money. Perhaps maybe your space needs to get just a little bit smaller or just need to take up a little less space in the room. And it is it is interesting to me. Like it always reminds me of when someone says you're not pandering to me anymore or you're or, or says you're pandering to those people. It usually means I don't have the place of ultimate supreme privilege anymore and I'm feeling a way about it. And if you've been in church ministry for 10 seconds, you know those people exist and they will talk to you about it. It's not even doesn't have to be about race or anything. There are just some families that have been institutions and churches for decades. And the second, like, you didn't put our table out for us at the potluck. This was your table. Oh, yeah, we always sit, you know, like, there, so it can be simple things like that, too. But there's always those church bosses and people that, yeah, we'll just get in your face and it creates a weird thing. I stopped writing thank you letters to the biggest donors and they got upset. And the reason I stopped writing is because I didn't know who they are. I intentionally decided to not find out what people were given. And when, when, you know, the board asked me, well, why don't you want to know? I said, have you ever heard the phrase implicit bias? If I know who's really paying my paycheck, I'm going to treat them differently, even if I don't want to. And I don't want to do that. Because at this point, you're a single dad. You know, this, this job is what is keeping your your daughter fed, you're in grief. There is something about both being an immigrant and a person of color in 2016 that was real rough. In Massachusetts, in a church that is like 99% white. <laughs> yep. And Massachusetts isn't where you've ever been that's, before. That's a that's lot the of other. There's just so many layers to this that not knowing who could be responsible for your paycheck makes sense to me because- I don't take small bites. I don't, I like, I, I take it all on. <laughs> <laughs> so how was the reaction? What happened? And then kind of how have you ended up to what you do now? Because you're not currently in a local church, correct? Not, not exactly. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but, but yes, slowly, but surely some people began to drift away. Now on the other side, there were, there were some folks who were finally glad that someone was actually saying these things out loud. And it all really sort of came to a head when I had a staff member 
privately ask me, why is it? She didn't understand why is it that, for example, I'm on social media posting all of these like, uh, you know, justice oriented quotes and promoting Black Lives Matter and, and, and saying these things that make it seem that I don't like white people when I'm in this church that's like 99% white of people who love me. So she, it, it doesn't make her feel great about that. So I was like, so what you're trying to say is because I'm in this experience that I can no longer be a voice for anyone else who looks like me who might be having a rough time in the world. So, so, so we had this discussion and I think she got a better sense of where it was coming from. The problem was then I got on the pulpit next Sunday and sort of said like, okay, here's what y'all need to understand. And I didn't replay the conversation, but I replayed the conversation. And I also replayed it using some very choice quotes from Martin Luther King's letter in Birmingham jail, where he basically called out all the white folk in the church. Oh, and, you didn't use the cute quotes? Because I feel like everyone loves to use a cute Martin Luther King well, quote. Well, Not the one where he's like, guess what the problem is? It's yes, white people. <laughs> it's, all, it's white people, yeah. That was white the moderates. talk. That, that was the talk. The talk was, we all love the cute quotes. Here's some of these cute quotes that we all love to use. We conveniently forget these other quotes as well, like this one and this one and the silent white majority and the church being a country club. And I just went for it. And things start to slowly but surely take a downward turn. And I should say that downward turn in terms of attendance and donations was already happening because church trends. And but then it began to accelerate. And what's happening at the same time is is we are we are our church building is in a strip mall. Okay. We were one of those strip mall churches. And a while back, way before I showed up, in the heyday of this church's experience, they bought up half the strip mall because they had this vision that they're going to expand. They can't fit in half the strip mall yet, but they bought half of it. So half of what they owned, they decided to rent out to, you know, business owners. And it so happened that we were going through this stretch where we didn't have tenants in those rental units. And of course, we've got to make up the shortfall for the mortgage and we are bleeding dry. So attendance is dropping, donations are dropping, and we are bleeding dry. So we realize that this happened to be a thing that happened a couple of times in the past before. And maybe it's about time we get off this roller coaster. So we decided to sell the building. The board says, think it's time we sell the property. Go tell a church that, and mind you, a lot of these folk were oh a lot of these folks were there when it was just the little, the little place at the end of the mall. And they put literal blood, sweat, and tears into this expansion. And now we got to sell this thing. And people lost their ever-loving mind. And of course, guess who? Guess who was the fall guy? Not the fall guy, but who was a target of a lot of their angst. Okay? Yeah, the pain. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And even though I intellectually know this is not about me, this is triggering every single fear they've ever had every single abandonment they've ever had, every single thing that's gone wrong in their life, this is triggering that, they're lashing out. Even though I know this intellectually that it's not about me, didn't mean it didn't hurt, right? So all of this is happening. And then guess what? COVID. 
Oh man. COVID rolls in, right? But but here's here's the beautiful part of this. Here's the we finally, we finally, well, we have to have a congregational vote in order to sell the properties in our bylaws. It takes us about a good six months of slowly, slowly working with the congregation. By the time we get to the point where almost everybody's on board, we vote to, 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 to sell the property and the building goes up for sale. It takes a while. We finally get a buyer. We go through this process. There's ups, downs, there's lefts and rights, there's curveballs. The thing finally comes to an end. We close on the sale of our building two weeks before COVID shut everything down. Yes. Right. And there was a whole lot of like, oh, my God, thank God. We dodged that bullet. Yeah. Right. All those people who were like calling for my head on a spike are suddenly happy that we sold the building. OK, so so we sell the building. We go virtual and there's no hiccup in our transition into virtual. Um, when I first got there, there was barely any online presence. There was no live streaming, nothing. And. I was like, you know what? I remember when they were interviewing me because in Unity, we don't get assigned to churches. We have to basically try out for the job. So I'm trying out for the job and they're like, what plans do you have to put more butts in the seats? I said, I have no plans for that at all. I believe pastors should operate like scientists trying to cure cancer. We're trying to put ourselves out of a job. I don't think my job is to fill seats. I think my job is to empower and equip you and send you out in the world to do good. I think my job is to empty the seats, not fill them. In the meantime, I'll work to get more eyes on us because it's 2015 and there's this thing called the internet. So let's see what we can do to probably going to end up being a big deal. (laughs) It it might, it might come in handy later. It might blow up. It might blow Mm -hmm. up. It might be a thing. Look, why did I not invest in zoom? So many questions I have for myself. There you go. Right. So when COVID shut everything down, like we were one of those churches because so many other churches in our in our denomination did not have this online presence and our views are going through the roof, like like or or online presence and uh, or people are watching this online for the first time they're joining us from all over the, the the country like we see this uptake it's glorious we're having fun and then of course church people being church people the complaints start coming in there was actually a couple of people asking wait are we still paying him full-time why are we still paying him full-time we're not we're not actually doing church on sunday and and things like that started to roll in now of course, those anyone who was being a minister during COVID, as we still are, realized that our job did not become easier. It became a yeah. lot harder. Right. So much harder. Not only did the job become harder, but all the, all the uh, fears, worries, anxieties that people are bringing to us for pastoral care, we are experiencing ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's, it's not doubly. I'd say it's triply hard quadruply even is that a word quadruply it is now it is yeah. now it's it now. is now um is. during this time we've, so we've so you know it's like we're pushing through i'm struggling getting worn worn out worn down and part of what was happening was i was also due for a big sabbatical in this year 2022 all right my contract is like after seven years of service and hard Look labor. At you jubi- jubilee yearing it. Nice. Right? Right? Nice. I was gonna get like a six months fully paid sabbatical. And it's 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 2020. And I'm like, oh, I can make it. 
I know I can make it. Just hang in there one more year, one more year. So we're, we're coming to the end of 2020 and we get the first word about the vaccines. The vaccines are coming. We're going to get vaccinated. We're going to be able to meet again in person, maybe as soon as like, you know, next spring, next summer, like, so, so we start talking, all right, well, if we're going to meet again, we're going to need a space because we just, we, we sold our building. We got a little office space we were renting. We need a space. So we start looking at spaces to rent. And I have this idea. I have this thought. I'm like, well, why do we, why do we need a space? Right? Like we just went fully online. It's, it's working great. I'm very clear that nothing will ever substitute in-person gatherings, but we try every Sunday morning to cram what I like to say it's spiritual education, spiritual inspiration, and spiritual fellowship into like this three-hour block. And that's just for the maybe the people who show up there to be a congregant. The volunteers, it's maybe five hours on a Sunday morning. Right. It's like it's like a lot of time. There are people who are there, you know, service starts at 1030. There are people who are there from like 9 a.m. and they're not getting they're not leaving there till like 1230 or something. It's a long day. And we try to cram everything in there. Sure, we might do some events during the week, but our church was like a destination place. People are driving as far as an hour to come on Sunday. They're not they're not showing up during the week at all uh, for stuff like that. So I have this idea. So like, why don't we just break these three things up? Right. People who were like, I don't like Zoom. I'm never going to come to a Zoom fellowship. Came to Zoom fellowship. They're like, oh my God, I love this, right? For the first time, I'm actually listening to these people I came to church with because it's Zoom. So I got to shut up and let them talk. And I'm learning more in the past six months than I learned sitting next to this person for the last six years. I, I, I love this. I love the fact that I don't have to get up and get dressed on a Sunday morning especially summer in New England, right? I can go hiking. I can go outdoors. I can have a great time and then come home and, and watch service. I can do this all the time. I can watch church in my pajamas. People are loving this idea. So I said, all right, let's keep the spiritual education part online. Keep my talks online. Keep the talks uh, uh, classes online. Let's let's have uh, invite people to do like Sunday morning gatherings in their home if they want, or some other time get together, watch a talk in small groups, do some small group gatherings at home, and then and then like twice a month, let's find like a big like party venue, like a rental venue, and have a big old like fellowship jam. Right, we bring out the band, and 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 everybody brings food, and we have like hospitality that you usually have after church instead of like cramming it in there for like 45 minutes we could have like this big massive party like on a friday night and nobody has to get up early and it's twice a month and let's really like think to some out of the box ideas about how we can now do this instead of going back to that same old model and everyone on the board was like no we want to buy another building <laughs> you really set me up that there was, i was like I, what happened it was the same I, way this is that was the best way to land that story that was yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and when when i heard this and something inside me broke a little bit yeah mm. oh i bet because i was like are you kidding me right now now i i understand intellectually what happened everybody wants to go back to what felt safe what felt familiar there was enough change going on right but i was like guys we we're the leadership we're supposed to be thinking ahead right 
we were actually working with a church consultant before COVID hit about how do we envision doing church differently? Because this Sunday morning tabernacle model is not working. We've run out of ways to get people in here. So we got to do something different. And COVID did it. COVID, the horrible pandemic that it is, that cost millions of lives, I think was the best thing that ever happened to church. Because it forced churches to do the one thing they never, ever wanted to do and thought would be the death blow for church, which was let's embrace some online ministry here in a big way. They didn't have a choice. And then these folks were like, nah, we want to buy a building and go back to doing it <laughs> yeah. on Sunday morning. It, it is like funny. It is funny when, when people say we want to do church differently or how do we do church differently? They're lying. Well, <laughs> you have to ask, what do you mean by that? Because mm. like, I think a lot of people, a lot of pastors are like, okay, when we talk about doing church differently, we talk about meeting on a different night, doing totally different venues, like thinking big. Most people, when they think doing church differently, they're like, what if we, what if we like had another guitar or a fog machine? (laughs) Or what if we like move the chairs around the same? We're still going to meet at 9am on Sunday though. Like, and we're going to have this nice building that I can point to and say, I built that with my not tithe. Let's be honest folks. And and so like, yeah, it, when people say like, let's do church differently, it's, you really have to dig down. What exactly do you mean by that? Because it's highly likely that they're not thinking it's going to be different. And, and I, I think people going from COVID, you know, yeah, you want to go back to what's safe. You want to go back to what you felt was different. Like, oh, this was a nice vacation we had for two years. Now let's go back to, to real church, quote unquote. Exactly. Except people aren't. That's the thing. I I have been preaching all over the country this this last little while. And it's not just that people are worried about, you know, the next wave. It's that people have set new rhythms. And Mm -hmm. I think what I heard and what you were saying is that you were trying to say, hey, what if we set, what if we became part of the rhythm instead of like, let's do this thing that like, really pulls people out of the rhythm of their daily life, which can be nice, right? Like it can be like formational and all that kind of stuff. But what if we, what if we did this thing that augments or supplements or is becomes a part of it? And a lot of people will say, oh, that's, you know, everyone pandering again to culture. But the truth is, is like never before have people worked the number of hours they work. Like it made sense to do church on Sundays to take the time out because people were doing weekends. People don't do weekends anymore. You know, I, today is the only day of the week. There is not traffic in LA. Like I drove to uh, Burbank to preach this morning and there was zero traffic because it's literally for most people, the only day that they might consider taking some family time. And I just love that idea. As I hear you speak, I love the idea of just like a a hangout celebration, like the education, the the stuff that like means something to me happening outside and then us gathering together as a people just seems like such a better use of resources. And save and save money, right? Not to pay for the overhead of upkeep of a building. Right. And, and, and if you don't have a, one, yeah. Right. And we, we, we had this absolutely massive band of professional musicians. Now we only pay them twice a month, I, you know, but we'll pay them more. We'll pay them what they're worth, but... But like there were so many cost saving measures and, and I said to them, and let's be clear, COVID is not the last pandemic that's going to happen. Right. So, so we basically pandemic proofing ourselves 
because the next pandemic that rolls around, the only thing we would probably lose then is that big gathering. And also, here's a great thing about this big gathering. People, like I said, we were a destination church. People would come from an, an hour north, an hour south uh, to, to come. We were right on 95, but an hour north of Boston. We had people who would drive up uh, from Boston on Sunday. And, and I said, now that Friday party, if we are renting a venue, we could move that party around, right? We have to worry about how we get the people to us. We go to them. So like every, every few months, we or every quarter we would move we would move the party to a different town within that within that hour circle and friends could invite their friends to the Friday night party and and then we all we're doing is having a good time and then oh by the way if you're not doing nothing you know check out the check out the talks online check out the classes online so 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 now we're we're getting people connected to us in a different way that's much more uh, familial and, 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 and I would say safe and comfortable and not, not religious triggering uh, as well. So, so yeah, but they sort of shut that down. And, and I'm the kind of person I knew that if I was gonna, could be a little underhanded and go like, you know, talk to a bunch of congregants behind the board's back and drum up some support and all that. But I, I, I am not generally that sort of like a confrontational B, I was so damn tired <laughs> also. <laughs> And and if the and if the leadership isn't behind the idea, then in my experience, the church board always always really does end up being that microcosm of the congregation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if they're not for this idea, I'm like, then probably most people aren't gonna be either. And now am I pushing it just for me and my ego and my thinking I know I'm right or not? And I was like, you know what? it's it's not my it's not my job to fix the situation what is it for me that needs to happen right so that's when i it, it i rustled with it for a few weeks but i realized i i can't i just can't hang out here and wait for a sabbatical because i knew that if i were to even if i were to make it through 2021 to 22 by the skin of my teeth just to get that 6 month sabbatical I'd quit within a month of coming back. Or you'd just be like, um, peace out. I'm done it's, after it's, the sabbatical. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, in hindsight, it might have been nice to have done it and set up the next thing <laughs> yeah, while yeah. I was getting paid on vacation. Yeah. But yeah. that that didn't happen. So so while I was going through this whole angst of like, I'm going to quit. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, who is also another union minister, who had the good sense never to really become a full-time church minister, says, you know, I've always thought about starting a new platform type venture, but I don't want to do it on my own. What do you think about us getting together and starting a new venture? And I was like, well, what do you have in mind? And we start talking and Project Sanctus was born. And what Project Sanctus is, our, our our, our focus is really on embodied anti-racism. So the idea is that is that racism is traumatic to all of us, right? It doesn't matter what color we are. Those of us with brown skin and, and darker skin, yes, racism and systemic racism and what we call white supremacy cultural norms affect us worst of all, but they affect everyone. And when I talk about white supremacy cultural norms. I'm not talking about the extremes of Proud Boys and KKK and all that stuff. I'm talking about things like 
sense of urgency, a sense of needing to be right, a sense of paternalism, one group knowing better for the other, um, uh, patriarchy, uh, heteronormativeness, all of this is wrapped up into in, in stems from, from the white supremacy set in these human hierarchies that are really just false concepts, right? But our country is founded, and when I say founded, I mean, you know, when then the Europeans rolled over, uh, founded. It's, ba it's baked into the Constitution. It's baked. Yeah. It's baked into Americana. Founded right? when it was already there were already people here. Exactly. Let's be honest. Yeah. No, you did exactly. not discover something, yeah. friends. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, none of these guys discovered anything. Right. Like, yeah. From from the time the displacement and the annihilation of the indigenous peoples began, all of this was was baked in, and it's you know we, we say uh, racism. It's not the shark in the water. It is the water. Right, so our work is centered around that, and it's it's geared specifically towards addressing it in spiritual communities. Because a lot of churches have this crazy idea that because God is love and they love everybody, that it doesn't exist within their four walls. And we're like, nah, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Trust me, it's existing where you are, and if you doubt it. How many times, if you're listening and you are a congregant in a church or even a minister, how many times have you found yourself saying and believing something along the lines of, well, God don't see color, right? That is probably one of the most disempowering racist statements you can make. God doesn't see color. Why is that? Okay, so if God doesn't see color, first of all, then you're saying that God doesn't see, see me because I'm a person of color. I know what you think you're saying. You're saying that God doesn't judge me on account of race, that God doesn't see race. And let's be clear, race doesn't really exist. It is a, it is a, a, a concept, but we believe it's real and therefore we have made it real <laughs> and, and, and all the things that result from it. But when you say that, then what you're also saying, well, if God doesn't see color, therefore I am not going to see color. And then when you say I'm not seeing color, what you're really saying is, I am not going to see the systems at play that make life that much harder for you. I'm not going to see the oppressions that you are under, right? Because they don't exist because color and race don't exist because God don't see it. It's interesting because it's a statement to me, like I'm colorblind is a statement of like an ideal reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's like, okay, had this country not been founded on 400 years of racism, maybe we could have a colorblind society in that way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that is not the world we live in. Like, and, and also like as a white person, when you say color, when we say colorblind, we perceive ourselves to be colorless in a lot of ways. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, God clearly, you know, it's like, but God doesn't see your colors like that. So that, that is the, the underlying current to that. So it, it is, it, it is a great way, like to use the word you said before, spiritually bypassing to say like this community is colorblind. We don't have those problems here, but I am sure all the white people are nodding their heads like, yeah, we don't have those problems. And I'm sure every person of color is like, mm, no, exactly. No. And, and, and so if I, if I wasn't, if I wasn't creating enough trouble when I was in the pulpit, then it, it, it started off, it, it increased when I did this. And then Fascinatingly enough, uh, our denomination has its own magazine, Unity Magazine, and they invited me to write a column 
on this subject. And my first column, I said, I might only have one shot at this. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. so let me, let me roll in. Let me, let me, let me swing in, it on in the, the chandelier. Hamilton, I'm going to take my shot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> take my shot. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> swing it on the chandelier and just like blast the blaze open. And that is what I did. I basically called out the denomination and members thereof for doing a great job of spiritually bypassing and using um, these teachings as a way, again, to escape any sort of call to action towards justice. And it was amazing. I got my first bunch of hate mail ever. Congrats. It was like, I knew I'd arrived. Mm -hmm. I knew I had arrived when that happened. But what also happened were great letters of support from people of color within unity who are like thank god somebody's finally saying this out loud sort of deal so it was it's it's been in a it's been a fun journey and i use the term fun loosely it's been a fun journey of of um, my co-founder uh reverend kelly isla and i uh doing workshops and conventions and and rattling people one of we one of the things we do every uh, two weeks two weeks um, a month on the first and third Wednesday evenings online via Zoom. We call them, we, we do affinity groups, right? So we, we, we come together and, and we're, we're, we're we, sometimes we have prompts, but they're, they're around racial issues. One of those Mondays, we're all in a big group together, but then the other Monday, Kelly, she's, she's white body. She takes the white folk and I take everybody else. And, and we, and we, because some of this work we have to do on our own, um, you know, I, I like white people come get your people and talk to them. And because us black people, we can't we we're not the ones responsible for fixing. Systemic I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, we, did, cool. we didn't we yeah. didn't cause it. <laughs> right. We're the ones that suffer the most from it. So so you guys got to take care of it. We're not going to do the work for you. So so we get together in another group and 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 we have our own conversations around and and it is beautiful and is and it's great. And what has really been fun to see over time is folks who come from church communities, not just church communities. It, you know, we welcome everyone, but mostly church communities who are shocked to realize they didn't know what they didn't know. And, and to see them struggling and, and, and to put their feet in their mouth and, and learn, yes, that's not the appropriate thing to say. And now they're beginning to notice other people saying and doing things at their churches. They're like, yeah, that's not okay sort of deal. And, and, and they're slowly beginning to see the transformation. And it is uncomfortable work to be in that space. But that's the only way the work gets done. Bringing in somebody to do a DA workshop, you know, for seven hours, twice a week, and then you're done. No, that's not doing anything. This is, this is a slow, this is a slow process of transformation. Because we've all internalized these, these, these white supremacy cultural norms even even me as a person of color i've internalized it because i'm a straight guy so i've internalized certain elements of sexism in myself and 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 i grew up very evangelical very homophobic uh as well uh like come full circle on that but that's that's all that stuff still embedded in the back of my mind so i have to be very mindful and conscious of when it arises within me. And I don't do it well all the time, but that's the work, right? You notice it when it arises and and you you make the intention to shift. Okay, and I was just gonna say, it feels like 
your story is one of being willing to being open to shifting. And as we close out our conversation, I know a lot of folks are going to have that same feeling like it's been shift after shift after shift that they've yes. experienced and they've been able to bring some people with them and some people they haven't been able to bring with them. So can you give like, even if it's a practice, what is the like one thing that has been helpful for you as you've experienced like, man, you have gone through it. What has grounded you in it? Or is there any sort of, because people we're all in different places as we learn more and more about the folks who are part of our community here at Revcovery. But there is this, I would say, universal experience of shifting. What's been helpful for you in that? Mm. I, I think what's helped sustain me through it all is um, you're from you're familiar with that saying wherever you go there you are. <laughs> yeah, it's mm-hmm. yeah, one of my favorites. Right. Mm-hmm. Where, wherever you go there there you are. Ultimately, it's not the external circumstances that are going to determine the outcome of your well-being. It's what's happening internally. That's where you need to pay attention. So when we talk about embodied anti-racism, what we're talking about is is pay attention to what your body is telling you, right? In all these circumstances, shut the mind off, shut the brain off, shut the what I should do, shut shut off the, the what is your body saying? Is your body at ease or is your body in a state of dis-ease, right? Is your your body relaxed and open? Is your body tensed and closed? Listen to your body. And if your body is not comfortable where you're at, you got to start asking some questions and perhaps looking elsewhere or shifting what's going on in your space. Let your body guide you. And you're saying, yeah, but, but you know, even in good places, you're uncomfortable sometimes. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Your body knows if you are where you should be. <laughs> right. There is discomfort and then there's uh, the warning sign. Your body's trying to take care of you. Yeah. Your, your, body's, your body's trying to take care of you and let your body inform you and trust it and trust that when you do what is being asked of you by your body, that God will meet you at the point of your need. God doesn't meet you before the point of your need. Mm-hmm. He don't need it then. <laughs> so if your body's asking for you to shift, if your body's saying to you, this is not where I am my most whole, then take that step forward. And, you know, just like in Indiana Jones crossing that chasm in the last crusade, that, that path will appear when you take the step, I mean, I mean, what, what's, what's the opposite of faith? It's not doubt, it's certainty, right? So, so don't, be, don't be so certain that what you are stuck in has to be that way. You got to take a breath, check in with the body. My daughter, who's a college uh, junior right now, she actually said, she said two things that were <laughs> very eye-opening from the mouth of babe. She goes, yeah, what you and mom used to do never made sense to me one being church ministers and then she says if anyone had told me that you were going to become the voice of social justice and anti-racism in this movement I'd have said nah y'all got the wrong guy right but here I am here I am and 
because I listen to my body saying it is not worth it to push for another year for a sabbatical to come back to the job. You know, you're going to quit anyways. Your body is saying to you, it is time. It's time to let it go. It's time to move on. They're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And just trust as it unfolds. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for giving us the gift of your story. Thank you for uh, being someone that I enjoy following online. I truly appreciate uh, all the work that you do. And friends, uh, you can check out uh, all the stuff that was mentioned today. We'll make sure that there's some links to that. And uh, thank you again so much for listening to another episode of Rev Recovery. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to this episode of RevCovery and the delightful conversation we were able to have. Just want to share with you a couple things before we get to our poem. First off is our Patreon and Discord community. We are very excited to offer that to you all. And and really, it's, it's more of a gift that you are able to offer each other. I think that has been the best thing. Uh, obviously, Sarah and I, we want to have insight. We want to we want to have a way to directly connect with you. But seeing um, you communicate with each other and encourage each other in this place that you're in, whether you're in ministry and looking to leave, whether you have left ministry and don't know what comes next, uh, it has been so good to see uh, this community begin to grow. And it's very exciting for us. So if you're interested in that, uh, please check out patreon.com slash revcovery. That's R-E-V-C-O-V-E-R-Y. The poem I wanted to share this week was, is really short. It's a very short poem, but sometimes you don't need that many words to communicate an idea. And we talked a lot about painful experiences and difficult experiences in this podcast. And I want to leave you with uh, something a little bit about pain and ways that we can transmute it into something good. This is a poem by Tanya Markul called Eleven. The pain that made you the odd one out is the story that connects you to a healing world. It is my hope that we can connect to the world in new ways with the experiences that we've had in our whole selves. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.